And now on Manx Radio this Timble Day, the premiere of a new locally produced radio play which paints an oral snapshot of a remembered Manxness from times past. Suddenly at Home by John Crane Rain trickles down, tickles down an offside window. Copycat condensation breathed heavy on the inside, warm from the death-rattling dashboard heater. The nation's station ramped to full volume over the hot-smelling hum. And now onto the obituaries, as read by Julie Cooley. We've been asked to announce the death of Kitty Kaneen, Nainin. She passed away peacefully after a long illness bravely born on Sunday the 17th of January at Isle of Man Hospice, surrounded by her family. Beloved wife of the late Dean Kaneen, mother to Amanda and Miranda, grandmother to Chloe and Zoe, Millie and Lily, great-grandmother to Aaron and Darren, Jimmy and Timmy... Alistair Callister listens to the broadcast with Janine Grigine, his Bronco bride, from a cold kitchen in, of all places, Bride. Switch it off, will you, Janine Grigine? She thinks of wet, dishcloth death and frostbite flesh left far from the flock. It gets them January. We'd lose them in January. Spades slicing into cold clods. The heft and bloat of solitary burial. I don't miss that. They haven't had the farm for 16 years, but it lies heavy in the collective unconscious of the house. Alistair Callister knows what she's thinking, and so says nothing at all. Stiff wooden chairs creak and squeak in the lowering light. The wide, concrete sky darkening to wetness as the rain rolls in from the south. The embossed wallpaper desaturates in the green, grey gloom. Don't put the light on yet, Janine Cregine. Alistair Callister squints through the darkness at the monochrome squares in his jumbo crossword catalogue. Only when the grids are impossible to work on will switches flick on warm lights and pink curtains pull across the fading, sodden view framed in PVC and speckle-flecked with droplets. The church spire, barely discernible against the watercolour sky, will be forgotten for the night. The real estate they occupy in the minds of Alistair Callister and Janine Crugine, usurped by images of Manchester terraces and Jill Dando holidaying in the Seychelles, so you don't have to. Spoke to Jane Castain this morning. Oh, aye. Nobody's seen Jill Jockin, but her house is on the market. Jane Castain thinks she's dead, or had been put into Palamona, because the estate agent said the house was in a state, and she found a poo in the toilet. Oh, God. We could go up there and skeet through the windows tomorrow. Put the lights on, Janine Jean. I can't see a thing in here. Twelve miles to the southeast, twelve miles as the hunted, hassled wren flies, Amanda and Miranda listen intently to the broadcasted death notice 
which has only recently begun drawing to its earnest end. Matty and Patty, Greya and Freya, Eddie and Freddy, and Vicky and Nicky. A funeral service will be held at Michael Parish Church on the 27th of January. Family flowers only, please. This has been the obituary of Kitty Green. <sighs> they didn't say much loved. They charged by the word, so we just left it out. The freshly emulsioned walls drip damp with cold and seem even more off-white in the tungsten glow of a bare bulb. The sisters stand in their ditch-dead mother's kitchen. Two white and healthy, newly wealthy, recently qualified orphans back home from England. Back home to childhood. Back home for the last languishing time. I can still smell Mum in here. I'll fetch the dettle. Get that out. The sisters have wasted no time removing the effects of the dearly departed. Her Fiat Panda was hastily sold this morning, replaced by a skip on a gravelled driveway, piled high with sofas and lampshades, now pebble-dashed and polka-dotted as the rain slicks silently in from the south. The estate agent will be in at nine. Across the island, televisions illuminate faces in soft, furnished living rooms. Chip-fat kitchens, quiet bars populated by committed boozers, in fluorescent, flickering hospital waiting rooms, always busier when it's wet. Hard-hatted men watch in desolate porter cabins. A hungry customer stares transfixed whilst waiting for chow mein at the Golden Dragon, Elsewhere, the broadcast is lost, under cacophonous burbles of foot passengers, waiting to board a ferry that smells of diesel and sick. The Manx like television. It doesn't carry local news. Hours can pass without any mention of who's ditch-dead and who's sad about it. Lock up when you're finished, Spikey Mikey. It's Spotty Watty in the offices of Lucas and Clucas, solicitors. He click-clacks the snaps of his briefcase that only contains his lunchbox. Aye, I'll see you in the morning. Spotty Watty has a mother to go home to. She'll sluice out his lunchbox and by morning it'll be refilled with neat yeasty sandwiches slathered and sliced by mummig. He opens his umbrella against the tip-tapping rain and proudly strides down the slicked slabs of Apple Street. Still at the offices of Lucas and Clucas, Spiky Mikey types a letter inquiring after outstanding fees. Dear sirs, I regret to inform you that September's fees are now 12 weeks overdue. <gasps> He pauses his white plastic word processing upon hearing a noise from upstairs. Up the Georgian staircase, up beyond the Panama-papered walls, a creaking half-footstep scuffs another sibilant rasp against dusty floorboard. Oh, only the ghost of Tom Tit. Oh, I. Only me. Can you hear me, Spikey Mikey? Should we not receive payment in full by the 29th? of this month 
No, but I can see you, Spiky Mikey. I watched you steal five quid from the hospice collection, used it to buy ten fags. Poor Kitty Canine didn't get her sherry because they were short by five pinched pounds and now she's ditched dead like me. There's no bottle socket in the ditch and that is a terrible thing. A terrible, terrible thing. Fully dark now and further south, across the wind-wasted moors, further south beyond skeleton thaltons and their sad, lonely memories. Sergeant Marchant eats a floppy petrol station sandwich for his dinner. <sighs> Not what it used to be. Not what it used to be. It used to be brimming bowls of broth in the canteen. Backslapping, speed-trapping banter. Steamed puddings passed through serving hatches. Football matches on cold afternoons. Square meals that set you up for the night shift. Now this. A sandwich in a dashboard heater. Bleating hot air over a stale BLT. Only three more years until retirement. If only he had something to retire to. A part-time security guard at a windowless supermarket. If I make it. His big, bap, taut bladder stomach hangs uncomfortably over his Marks and Sparks trousers. Uh, these need letting out. If only I had a wife. If only, Sergeant Marchant. If only... If only I had a wife to let out my trousers. But to get a wife, I'd need to lose weight. And then I wouldn't need a wife to let my trousers out. Oh, what it is to be a modern man. Car 13, coming. Roger. There's kids kicking wing mirrors off cars on Bayview Road. Have a look, will you? Will do. When he arrives, the street is cold quiet, dead quiet, dead ditch quiet. The children have scampered, and three wing mirrors lie still in the sodium streetlight. Who's that? It's Bunny Beg, shouting down from her bedroom window. Bunny Beg, who often calls for policemen, who blows the whistle on the fly-kickers, sign-nickers and litterers, dog-shitters, those who park on double yellows, and once on two lads holding hands. It's only me, Sergeant Marchant. Is that you, Bunnybeg? I haven't seen you for years. Well, I've had a stroke. Down the street... Spotty Watty poot pootles and pumped to a stop in his hatchback. Time to lower thoughts of Lucas and Clucas deep down into their soft eiderdown beds. He leaves his job at the office as he never tires of telling anyone inclined to listen. He sucks the cold air to numb his lungs, briefly regards a policeman being barracked by Bunny Beg, something about mirrors. Then into the house, the nest, back to Mummig's breast. Hiya, love. Bunny Beg shouting at a policeman. 
Spotty Watty heads for his bedroom, his childhood bedroom still stocked with a sticker-adorned armoire. The child's wallpaper depicts handsome lads in short shorts, red flat collarless shirts, 4-2 to England. We don't have a football team, so Ingerland. But those lads... Many a dream of Spotty Watty has been dominated by thick thighs and dark smiles. Mouth spitted and wet, arm-pitted, wet-dreamed, wonderful visions of taut, toned torsos. Lads who look down at you from the wallpaper. Disciplinarians. Put those thoughts away, Spotty Watty. Your tea's ready. Dotty Watty has cooked savoury mince, which steams on clean white china, ice white against baby blue formica. Overmilked tea struggles to steam in a small blue willow patterned teacup which has lost its saucer and never quite recovered. Across from Spotty Watty, his mother dandles a small pink pill with her chubby, fossilised fingers. For my arthritis, you know. The meal is bravely born. Dotty Watty takes his plate and sponges away the bovril brown remains of the savoury mince. Put the telly on Spotty Watty, there's a good lad. And he does. All 42 years of him, clicks on the television and flicks for something clean. Matchmaking of a different kind in EastEnders. Too much muck on the telly these days, all about sex. We don't go in for that. No, not for us. He's his mother's son. The evening draws on and thoughts across the island turn to sleep. In pubs, long-tailed, tall tales are curtailed by last orders being called early. It's all many thanks, Armitage Shanks, then it's my way or Ronald's way. Children murmur and snuffle in deep duvet slumbers. Insomniacs who dream only of sleep are tossing and turning. Overheated, sweaty-footed minds flicker anxieties like microfiche. New mothers shush and kiss the hot foreheads of wailing babies. Alcoholics fizz Alka-Seltzers in bedside tumblers. Old bodies who sleep alone curl into the cool, layered blankets for warmth in just-me-now bedrooms. Tucked, terraced miners' cottages look out over the pitch-dark sea in the east. Inside, Gail Quayle rolls and rumples with Philip Killip in her shoebox bedroom, fogging the windows to gasping, ecstatic condensation. Hearts throb in sweat-slicked bedsheets, the numbers notched bedpost rhythmically tapping out tempo against textured wallpaper. I wasn't. All right! All right! Philip Killip turns over with a prophylactic snap, attempts to muffle a Cronenberg belch. Oh, it's dead charming in here tonight. I might want the room, you know. Oh, go on then. And if you see Fenella Galling's wizened face at the window, tell the old hag she might not hear so much if she wasn't holding a glass to the wall. All right! And so Philip Killip 
pads down the staircase and out into the frigid, rain-stopped night. But there is no pinched face of Fenella Gelling at the window. Just the pitch-black, ditch-dead darkness reflected in the chilled windowpane. Sleep is deeper as slow spheres pull heavy water and forces silently rotate unimaginable mass to the clockwork click-track of the universe. Spiky Mikey sleeps soundly, untroubled by guilty thoughts of stolen five-pound notes. Alistair Callister dreams of the old days when he still had the farm of farrowing and furrowing. Wet cold, dear old Ellen Vanin up to his calves every day. A full technicolor life before it contracted to the grey scale of the jumbo crossword catalogue. Not the cryptic ones. They're too hard. And in another head, only a pillow away. Janine Crigine, who never lost her maiden name and who hated the farm but cried the day they sold it to the estate builders. Two brains which revisit the farm each night, which ghost through concrete and bitumen and bricks to their little piece of hell heaven. A land that they think of in a language that they don't speak. A ditch-dead language which is never quite as dead or alive, as anyone thinks. And in that same sad realm, the ghost of Tom Tit still scuffs along the upstairs floorboards of Lucas and Clucas, waiting for someone who will never arrive. I knew Fletcher Christian before he went off mutineering, I think. It was long ago. So long ago. So, so long ago. And then, in the early hours, sunrise still hours away, the first alarms begin to rattle and beep their heavy-eyed owners awake to face another day. As the first early risers squeak on taps to draw hot baths and blast steaming showers over themselves, Sergeant Marchant returns from his shift. Yanks on the chain of his tie of egg before shuffling towards bed, draining the dregs from a can of Boddington's, groaning down to his cold mattress, ready for a long, fermenting, flatulent slumber. Also sucking from tins are deckhands on fishing boats, returning with the morning catch, decked out in yellow rubbery waders with hands still stinking of fish guts. Five men went out, and five men came back. This time... And further north... Alarms, not quite loud enough to wake the dead, begin to sound in the house of Kitty Canine Nainine. Amanda, who slept in ditch-dead Kitty's bed, and Miranda, who slept in a single bed under the dormer eaves of a cold, boxed-up back bedroom, back to a packed-up childhood. 
She looks at the faded old lady wallpaper and recalls the day her father single-handedly hung it. Oh, he wouldn't allow us to see it going up. Only after much a grumbling and a mumbling were the family invited up for the grand reveal. And when he opened the door, a long wet column of paper had flopped down and everybody laughed. Everybody except me, little Miranda, who cried. And Dad whisked me up and whispered with whiskey breath that he'd fix it all. But he's not around to fix it all now. Because he's ditched dead like his wife, Kitty Canine. And now it's been on the radio, so everybody knows. Not little anymore Miranda. Big Miranda. Quietly sobs, weeping big girl tears in the same room as 52 years erstwhile. Tears for each visit home that yielded fewer familiar faces. Tears for the final tie unbound. Free now, as thy sweet mountain air. Miranda! The estate agent will be here at nine. The clock clicks eight, but Spotty Watty is long up and about, combing his hair and slurping up the flakes that Dotty Watty has shaken from her packet, always served with blue milk. Only the best for Spotty Watty. Be porridge tomorrow, flakes again on Friday, a nice cup of tea with plenty of nice cold ice cold fresh. And don't forget to buy local now. She pushes heavily buttered toast into her mouth, also locally sourced. And true to form, the lunchbox has been refilled, just as it always is, with geometric white and healthy. That's me off then. Better go and get the car started. Cool this morning. And with that, Spotty Watty is away to get the dashboard heater running. His breath hangs crisp as white mist as thoughts of Lucas and Clucas resurface again, like drowned fishermen in sea fog. He's a good lad, our Spotty Watty. Just needs to find a nice girl. Used to hang round with a fat lass from two streets over when he was 17. But she moved to Peel. She wasn't right for him. Had a chunk missing out of her head. He'll meet the right girl one day. And I'll be absolutely heartbroken. Alistair Callister has also been roused from his rumple-crumpled bed by the smell of eggs popping in hot oil. I miss those early starts, Janny. Oh, I. Getting up and about to see the sunrise. Dew on your cold wellies. Slapping a cow's ass before breakfast time. No one's stopping you from rising early, Alistair Callister. Though I don't want you slapping at my haunches before the eggs are fried. Oh, you know how to get a rise out of me, Janine Crajean. Get off! There's hot fat here. And I want to go over to Jill Jockin's house to peep a skeet through her windows before the dog walkers are sniffing about. Nosy beggars. Bunny Begg has taken her usual seat at the window, casting her eager eye over Bayview Road, waiting for her carer to come in and cook her breakfast. 
If I could only read them tax discs on the car windscreens, I could make a bloody fortune for the treasury. If I wasn't so tragically housebound. Well, here we go. A dog without a lead. Well, a young girl with three kids who can't even be more than 20 herself. Fancy that. Three children by 20. And by three different men, I expect. Well, love. You want to keep your knickers on, girl. The eldest too old for that buggy and all. Oh, Bunnybeg's work's never done. Where's Gail Quail? I'm starving hungry for me breakfast. Only me, Bunnybag. Morning, love. Oh, to do with you? You look tired. It was an eventful night on my street. Fenella Gelling was banging against the wall because Philip yeah, was... Yeah, well, it was an eventful night on this street. No, kiddies barely out the buggies, kicking at cars, called for policemen, called for social services, and in the end they send a fat lad. Absolutely useless. Spiky Mikey is already four fags into the day and keen to get off the headachey number 26 bus. Its windows steamed to pale mist opacity. His own breath, nicotine stink mixed with breakfast quavers and Maxwell House, condenses on the cold glass. He coat sleeves it away just in time to see Spotty Watty passing, straight backed in his hatchback. <laughs> what a nerd. I'm still hungry. Should have had that steaming bowl of gingerbread. And as 9am approaches, far from the traffic and murmuring exhausts, Leslie Smedley appears to appraise Kitty Kaneen Nainin's former dormer. Let's start with the outside. Should we? Fascias, fixtures and fittings. Soffits and barge boards have seen better days. And can I ask, is the inside clean? I was viewing a property just recently where the toilet had been flushed. And needless to say, there was no sale that day. Is property moving at the moment? No, oh no. Not this kind of property. People are looking for something more modern. A new build will get snapped up before they've laid their foundations. But these dormers are ten a penny. They come on the market every week. A lot of old ears passing away, you see. These single glazings will have to be replaced. I can see through the windows that the interior is very dated. In need of modernisation, I'm afraid. Amanda and Miranda could weep. It feels like Kitty Canine herself has been ditched into the skip, a pair of legs with pink patterned slippers sticking out from a hitched-up nightie. Uh, shall we have a look inside? Oh, my goodness. This wallpaper is doing the place no favours. Oh, I miss my mum. And for a moment, Leslie Smedley has nothing to say. Gazes at Amanda like something very important has just been said. Something that often gets lost in don't cry, dry-eyed, not grief. Uh, have you thought of giving that property a name? I've always thought the Nook is an attractive name for a house. Further north, in wax jackets, 
Janine Crujine and Alistair Callister stalk towards Jill Jockin's bafflingly for sale bungalow. They pause on the road to allow a muck spreader to thunder past, huge, tired, obscene dirt squashing wheels leaving the stench of nostalgia hanging in the air. But Janine Crujine must get to the bottom of the mystery of whether Jill Jockin is ditched dead, or if she's finally cracked and has been carted off in a straitjacket for a go on the old electro-convulsive machines. Careful now, Johnny! But there's no stopping her. She's through the dark creosoted gate and over the lawn, off-pathing it through a flowerbed, for it's well known that Jill Jockin neglected to plant bulbs and deadhead her dafts. Janine Crujine knows what she wants to see. A messy inner space, dirty, dead fly window sills, dust settled on soft furnishings, maybe even a stain on the carpet, bodily fluids, clues to the terrible, titillating fate of Jill Jockin. Janine Crujine reaches the net-curtained window and peers within, holds her hands up to shade the glare off the manx glass and ghostly white. An endless... Misty white infinity starts to come slowly into vision as her pupils dilate. And slowly, very slowly, an image begins to present. Not quite clear to begin with, gradually emerging from the misery of nothingness within. Not just a shape, but a face. An angry, pale woman's face, and not just any woman, a familiar, raw, pastry face. Oh, Alistair Callister, it's the ghost of Jill Jockin. The hideous visage of Jill Jockin stares back at her through the nets, not ditch-dead or gone mad, but absolutely furious. I'm not dead yet, you skitty old bitch. And before the rush of adrenaline renders her unconscious, Janine Crujine turns on her Wellington heel and sprints like never before, vaults over the gate like a horse and skids on the green-brown muck of partially digested straw strewn about the lane, keeps her balance and is off, powerful haunches pumping beneath her denim. What scenes? Alistair Callister is suddenly overwhelmed by a desire to get home, cast off his slacks, and be taken wildly by the raw, beautiful beast. (sighs) Feeling less animated is Sergeant Marchant, who is slowly roused from his dozing by Desmond the Cat pouring and purring into his puffy face. He's due back on shift at twelve. No rest for the wicked puss. Sergeant Marchant rasps breakfast butter over charred toast before teaspooning Kitty Cat into a saucer for Desmond, watches him gobble it down, and, after watching him lick his lips, is unable to resist licking his own. Two cups of tea and a breakaway, and he's off, ready to fiercely fight crime wherever it may manifest. He harumphs into his police car and takes a moment for himself to think of absolutely nothing. Car 13, are you on yet? I just am. Um... Go over to the terrace of cottages and peel. Someone can't get an answer out of 23. Alright boss, will do. Sergeant Marchant will enjoy the drive. It's a pretty road. It'll be nothing. 
exactly the same thing happened last week. We barged in and there was a little old swift of a woman surrounded by flour and pastry, baking without her death aid in. Old fellas get paranoid that they'll get a reputation for discovering ditch dead old ears. So they want the police there, like. Little does Sergeant Marchant know that today will not be like the other days. There will be no pastry and laughing and slapped bum blushes. No, today there will be a surprise waiting behind door 23. Rumbling stomach-clenching seconds are ticked off by workers watching clocks talking down to lunch breaks. Playgrounds chunter with children, roads busy, farmers return to warm kitchens and steaming plates of carbohydrates. Offices begin to hum with the nattering of flirtatious temps and young people who take their lunch break late to diminish stale afternoon hours. Do you remember Jim McEwen? He used to collect the lunches and carry all the sandwiches between the spokes of an upturned umbrella. <laughs> That's not true, Spiky Mikey. It is, Mokro. It is. He's right. I saw him. But nobody can hear the ghost of Tom Tit, and so the peculiarities of Jew and McEwen are dismissed as nonsense. The past has passed into irrelevance. I remember Drew McEwen. He had curly hair and once punched his wife so hard she went grey overnight. But again, your tales are as good as fiction, Tom Tit. The certainty of history is no longer tethered to fact. Oh, what it is to be forgotten. It happens to the best of us, Tom Tit. It does, it does. And whilst jokes and funny stories have been told and others not told about Drew and McEwen, Sergeant Marchant has arrived at door 23 and found what was inside. And now he's exiting quietly, carrying his hat in his big, gentle hands. He stands for a moment, looking at his feet, and thinks that he must remember to buff his boots to glint gloss black this evening. Now he turns and knocks next door a rat-a-tat-tat on black lacquered oak, which is opened by Gail Quayle. Hello? Hello, madam. Was it you who called us about your neighbour? Fenella Gelling? I think you've got the wrong house. She'll have called you about us. She was giving it loads, banging on the wall most of the nights. And as she's speaking, Sergeant Marchant comes to a slow cascading understanding not waving but drowning um I'm very sorry madam I'm afraid she's passed away looks like she's had a fall in the upstairs bedroom Gail Quayle has absolutely nothing to say sets her gaze on the waves breaking out at sea and can only think. Not waving, but drowning. Not waving, but drowning. And to 
tonight, and for many, many nights to come, Gale Quail will see Fenella Gelling's face receding into the deep blue, blue-black depths of her dreams. Fenella Gelling was someone who seldom received mail, someone who wasn't missed, who was briefly forgotten and is sure to be forgotten again. Nobody will notice her departure, for she didn't mean that much to anybody in particular. This was her last dry husk thought, as she lay on her bedroom floor in the ditch-dead darkness, when knocking faded to a touch, and the slow goodbye of drowning surrendered to thirst. The announcement will go unmade, unrequested, unread and unheard, unbilled for by the word, Fenella Gelling, who went suddenly, at home. Suddenly at Home was narrated by James Northcott, featuring Sarah Hendy as the newsreader, Alice Willoughby as Julie Cooley and Mo Crow, Andrew Willoughby as Alistair Callister, Lynn Kermode as Janine Crajean, Jane Corkle as Amanda, Jilly Bowers as Miranda, Edward Crompton as Spotty Watty, Sam Bowers as Spiky Mikey, Ben Crookle as Tom Tit, Ned Bowers as Sergeant Marchant, George Willoughby as the Police Dispatcher, Neil Mooney as Bunny Beg, Dot Tilbury as Dotty Watty, Abby Kermode as Gail Quayle, Ryan Gartland as Philip Killip, Alison Lodge as Leslie Smedley, Celia Jockin as Jill Jockin. The studio technician was Sarah Hendy. Music by Ellie Quayle. Edited by Edward Crompton. Written by John Crane. Produced by Di Wilson. And directed by Sonia Quayle. Suddenly at Home was made with the generous support of the Isle of Man Arts Council and Manx Radio.